Section 15 of the Watergate Report, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Final Report of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, Volume 3. Chapter 8. The Hughes-Rebozo Investigation and Related Matters, Part 8. 4. The FBI's Role McLaren's March 26 memorandum was prompted by a March 23 memorandum written to him by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, with copies to no one else. According to the memorandum, on March 19, the day Mitchell gave the go-ahead to Danner, someone representing Hughes told a Dunes representative that the antitrust division would not object to the purchase. Because McLaren had not given his approval, he wrote the memorandum to Mitchell so that Mitchell could clarify any misimpressions he might have had. It was McLaren's impression that Mitchell had talked with the governor of Nevada about the dunes, an impression traced back to what Mitchell told him in their first conversation in early March, and that the governor had in turn talked to representatives of Hughes, who in turn had approached the dunes. The end result of this chain was the clearly erroneous impression, held by the Hughes and Dunes representatives, that the antitrust division had approved the purchase. McLaren attached the March 23rd Hoover Memorandum to his memorandum to Mitchell, and concluded the memorandum as follows. I trust that the attached FBI report inaccurately records the understanding which the state government received from the department. Unfortunately, the FBI has been unable to provide further explanation of the Hoover Memorandum and any interest it may have had in the dunes. There are no FBI memorandums in either the Stardust file or the Landmark file. One antitrust division official has stated that this kind of apparently self-initiated FBI involvement in an antitrust case is unusual. Another antitrust division official said that a memorandum directly to the assistant attorney general from the FBI director was unusual. Hughes and his representatives were interested in enlisting FBI support for Hughes's hotel purchases, at least as far back as the time of the stardust. In a February 12, 1968 memorandum to Mayhew, Hughes urged Mayhew to meet with Dean Elson, then head of the Las Vegas FBI office and later a Hughes employee, and George Dickerson, chairman of the Nevada Gaming Commission, to convince Dickerson that Hughes ought to be allowed to buy the stardust because he would drive out criminal elements. James Coyle, in one of his Stardust memorandums, dated April 26, 1968, reported that the FBI was pleased to see Hughes enter the Las Vegas hotel market. Harold Campbell, who headed the Las Vegas FBI office at the time of the attempted acquisition of the Dunes, said that he may have written one memorandum to Washington on a report he received some time after the Dunes negotiations terminated, that the negotiations had taken place, but he did not remember hearing about any antitrust division interest in the case.
5. The Anti-Crime Factor in the Dunes Decision As the preceding discussion showed, John Mitchell told his Antitrust Division Chief, Richard McLaren, that he, Mitchell, wanted to approve Hughes's plan to buy the Dunes because Hughes would drive out criminal elements present there. Mitchell told McLaren that the governor of Nevada was pushing for approval of the purchase on this anti-crime grounds, and McLaren relayed that information to Coyle. When talking with Danner about the dunes, however, Mitchell never mentioned the anti-crime argument or the governor of Nevada, and Danner never approached Mitchell from that angle. According to Danner, he simply gave Mitchell a statistical memorandum on hotel rooms in Nevada, a memorandum recalled by neither McLaren nor any other antitrust division lawyers who should have or might have seen and evaluated it. According to Danner, the only Danner-Mitchell discussion regarding criminal elements in Las Vegas hotels was the discussion they had in late 1969 about the Frontier Hotel. In an attempt to determine where Mitchell got the information he conveyed to McLaren in early March 1970, and whether it was correct and relevant to the approval he gave Danner, the Select Committee conducted numerous interviews. Paul Laxalt was governor of Nevada at the time of the dunes, and according to McLaren, the source of pro-Hughes pressure for approval of the dunes' acquisition— he was interviewed twice and later submitted an affidavit to the select committee. His statements flatly contradict every aspect of Mitchell's apparent assertion to McLaren that Laxalt was promoting Hughes. Laxalt had supported Hughes in his early hotel purchases in Las Vegas, but the Dunes presented a different case. In his affidavit to the select committee, Laxalt denied discussing the dunes with any officials in Washington, stated that he would have opposed Hughes's plan if he had heard about it, because Hughes had reached his limit of gaming licenses in southern Nevada, and indicated that the dunes was, in his opinion, a well-operated hotel free of any problems. Laxalt's position was supported by Frank Johnson, who at the time of the attempted acquisition of the dunes was chairman of the Nevada Gaming Policy Board, the investigative arm of the Gaming Commission. He, too, never heard about the dunes' plan and would have opposed it. Thinking that Mitchell might have been getting the anti-crime argument he used with McLaren from within the Justice Department, the Select Committee interviewed numerous Justice Department lawyers, to determine what, if any, feeling there might have been in the department that a Hughes purchase of the dunes in 1970 would have been desirable. None of these men was aware of any Hughes interest in buying the dunes during 1970, or talked with Mitchell about the matter. As a result, the source of John Mitchell's argument for approving the Hughes purchase that he conveyed to McLaren has not been determined. Hughes's representatives had made the anti-crime argument in 1968 at the time of the Stardust case. There was some discussion between Edwin Zimmerman, Assistant Attorney General, Antitrust Division, and Fred Vinson, Jr., Assistant Attorney General, Criminal Division, about Hughes's plan to buy the Stardust, 
with vincent deferring to the antitrust division but seeing merit in hughes's argument the anti-hoodlum argument was rejected by the antitrust division six what happened after the march twenty sixth memorandum mclaren said that after march twenty sixth he heard nothing about the dunes from mitchell or anyone else and talked with no one about the case until late in november discussed below however walker b comegies mclaren's deputy had a different recollection he distinctly remembered mclaren stopping by his office just before mclaren left washington on a trip mclaren told comegies according to comegies that mitchell had decided not to oppose hughes's plan to buy the dunes because all other potential purchasers had mafia connections this was the first and only time comegies heard any concern about the dunes within the justice department according to mclaren's logs he left for europe on may twenty first nineteen seventy mclaren emphasizing that he cannot remember mitchell telling him he had approved the dunes purchases was willing to accept comegies recollection and said he would be terribly surprised if mitchell granted approval without consulting him since as far as he knew mitchell never double-crossed him although mitchell's log for may twenty first shows no call to or from danner danner's telephone records show a call to the justice department on may twenty first danner recalled only that the negotiations fell through some time after march nineteenth but it is possible that he called mitchell on may twenty first as the hughes dunes negotiations were apparently nearing completion and thus prompted a mitchell mclaren conversation and mclaren's apparent conversation with comegies this chain of events is speculative of course but it may provide an explanation of the otherwise coincidental danner call and mclaren comment both on may twenty first at five o five p m on friday may twenty second comegies received a phone call from howard adler a washington lawyer who was calling on behalf of lawyers for the rapid american corporation which like hughes was then negotiating a possible purchase of the dunes as comegies recalls the conversation adler whom comegies knew told him that the people he was calling for represented another potential buyer of the dunes who had no mafia connections comegies told adler he had gotten the message comegies made no comment to adler on the antitrust division's position comegies did not remember whether he reported this call to anyone in the antitrust division to mitchell or to mclaren when he returned from europe in early june mitchell's log shows a conversation with comegies at twelve fifteen p m on march twenty second before adler called and both Mitchell's and Comegy's logs show a telephone conversation between them on May 26th, the next business day after May 22nd. The Adler to Comegy's call came about as follows. Les Jacobson, a New York lawyer for Rapid American and partner in Freed, Frank, Harris, Shriver, and Jacobson, who was in Las Vegas negotiating with Dunes representatives, learned that hughes was also interested in buying the hotel 
Jacobson remembered that Hughes had had antitrust problems with his Las Vegas hotel interests in the past, and wanted to make the antitrust division aware of another purchaser. Jacobson called Milton Eisenberg in the firm's Washington office, and because he knew that Adler, who had been in the antitrust division, would know whom to call. Adler was not in the same firm as Jacobson and Eisenberg. Adler told Comegys that he hoped the antitrust division would consider not only antitrust questions on the dunes, but would also look to the question of criminal influences in Las Vegas hotels. Neither Jacobson nor Aronson remembered saying anything about the anti-mafia argument. The select committee discovered no direct link between the May 22nd Adler to Comegys call and the May 22nd letter described below. On May 22, 1970, as the Hughes-Dunes negotiations appeared to be nearing agreement, James Hayes, a New York City lawyer, partner in Donovan, Leisure, Newton, and Irvine, representing Hughes on the TWA v. Hughes case, wrote a letter to the presiding federal judge, Honorable John Metzner of the Southern District of New York, informing the judge that Hughes was about to buy the dunes for $35 million in cash, and that the attorney general had approved the purchase. Hughes had recently lost a large monetary judgment in the district court, and was before Judge Metzner on the question of how large this supersedus bond should be for appeal. The judge was concerned that Hughes was tying up too many of his assets in non-liquid items, which could present problems of liquidity if the judgment against Hughes were upheld on appeal. Mayhew remembered telling Hayes at Hughes's request to write the letter, but he did not remember telling Hayes that Mitchell had approved the deal. Edward P. Morgan, who was in Las Vegas with Mayhew on May 22nd, negotiating the deal for Hughes, remembered talking with Hughes's lawyer, Chester Davis, after Mayhew brought him into a Mayhew-Davis telephone call. Morgan told Davis that the deal was on the verge of final agreement. Davis told Morgan that he needed the information for Judge Metzner. Morgan assumed that Danner relayed the information from Mitchell to Hayes. Richard McLaren was unaware of the letter until apprised of it by the select committee staff. Based upon the integrity and reputation of Hayes and his firm, McLaren was sure that Hayes would not have written the letter without receiving assurances that Mitchell had approved the deal. 7. The Negotiations and Their Collapse Shortly after Danner received approval from Mitchell and gave the news to Mayhew, Mayhew, as always at Hughes's request, called Edward P. Morgan and told him to begin negotiations with representatives of the Dunes. Morgan described the call this way. I got a call from Mr. Mayhew saying that Mr. Hughes was most interested in acquiring the Dunes Hotel, and I remember my reaction was, in effect, how the hell does he expect to do this, when he was turned down on the Stardust deal by the Antitrust Division, and in the intervening period had acquired the landmark under an exception. And then I learned, as I had learned in other areas, that mine was not to know the reason why, that Mr. Hughes wanted it done. 
Mayhew assured Morgan that Hughes was satisfied there would be no Justice Department objections. Morgan, assisted by Tom Bell, Hughes's personal lawyer in Las Vegas, negotiated with Morris Schenker, the St. Louis lawyer who represented the Dunes, and Sidney Wyman, casino manager at the Dunes. Schenker provided the select committee with documentation on the negotiations. The deal fell through in late May 1970. The course of the negotiations themselves is unimportant, but several points are noteworthy. All participants agreed that financial considerations alone led to the break-off of negotiations in late May 1970, shortly after the May 22nd letter was sent to Judge Metzner. Schenker produced updated profit and loss figures on the dunes, which showed a substantial loss for the preceding months due to a loss of business during remodeling and an employee's strike. Antitrust considerations played no part in the termination. In fact, Schenker and Wyman did not remember questions about the Justice Department's antitrust policy ever arising during the negotiations. Morgan remembered Schenker once asking him if there would be any antitrust problems. Morgan told him that he, Morgan, had been assured there were none. On November 24, 1970, some seven months after the negotiations between Hughes and the Dunes broke off, J. Edgar Hoover wrote a still unexplained memorandum to the Attorney General, with copies to the Deputy Attorney General Richard Kleindienst and McLaren. Hoover reported that Hughes had renewed his interest in the Dunes, and that Edward P. Morgan was implying to someone that the Antitrust Division would not object to the purchase. The late date of this memorandum makes no sense in terms of the statements and documentation the Select Committee has been given. Because the FBI provided no further evaluation, the basis of this memorandum is still unexplained. McLaren remembered receiving a copy of the memorandum, which to him did not constitute firm enough information to warrant initiating a preliminary inquiry, McLaren did write a note to Badia Rashid, Director of Operations, when he received the Hoover Memorandum. He asked Rashid which individual had worked on Las Vegas hotels earlier, saying that McLaren wanted to talk with him. It is not clear whether Rashid ever received the memorandum. Note that his name is crossed out and replaced by the word file in McLaren's handwriting. Rashid remembered telling McLaren that Coyle was the Las Vegas hotel expert. Having learned that, McLaren apparently did nothing. Neither he nor Coyle remembered discussing this second Hoover memorandum. Coyle remembered seeing the memorandum, the original of which was, for some unexplained reason, sent to California and routed to Coyle. That was presumably Mitchell's copy. The memorandum may have been, in the juxtaposition of the following two paragraphs, Hoover's oblique way of asking Mitchell why there had been a change in the department's position since the Stardust case. It was reported that Morgan has strongly implied that there will be no objection from the antitrust division of the Department of Justice concerning Hughes's efforts to purchase another Las Vegas casino. 
as you will recall the antitrust division objected to hughes's attempt to purchase the stardust hotel casino in las vegas in nineteen sixty eight edward p morgan robert mayhew and e perry thomas the las vegas banker mentioned in the hoover memorandum denied that as reported in the memorandum they visited the sec as a group to seek approval for a cash purchase of the dunes by hughes c conclusion in contrast to the immediately preceding case involving hughes's hotel plans the landmark the initial approach to the justice department on the dunes was made directly to the attorney general not to the antitrust division it was made by richard danner the courier of a hundred thousand dollars to rebozo who was also a friend of rebozo mitchell and president nixon although danner and mitchell contend that their discussions concerned antitrust questions regarding the hotel market in las vegas mitchell apparently did not invite his antitrust chief richard mclaren to any of the meetings with danner advise him of the meetings or submit Danner's statistical memorandum to the Antitrust Division for analysis. In fact, the Danner-Mitchell meetings were kept so secret that McLaren wrote his one memorandum to Mitchell on the dunes one week after Mitchell gave Danner approval of the purchase. As the evidence demonstrates, the apparent decision by Mitchell to approve the dunes purchase is clothed with the appearance of impropriety. One, secret meetings were held in lieu of the existing procedures for providing an appropriate antitrust analysis. Two, an ad hoc decision was made by the Attorney General which reversed the position of the professionals in the antitrust division, a position based upon considerable study and statistical analysis. And three, except for the fact that the purchase negotiations ultimately fell through for financial reasons wholly unrelated to antitrust considerations this is a classic case of governmental decision-making for friends seven rebozo's 1972 campaign fundraising role on december twentieth nineteen seventy three charles g rebozo testified in a civil deposition as follows I am not a fundraiser. I never have been. However, evidence before the Select Committee indicates that, one, Rebozo solicited funds at the request of President Nixon, two, Rebozo opened and maintained an account at the Key Biscayne Bank and Trust Company for the retention of 1972 campaign funds, three rebozo used his personal safe deposit box at the key biscayne bank and trust company to store cash campaign contributions for the nineteen seventy two campaign four rebozo was aware of other in-kind contributions and cash contributions five rebozo personally handled at least a hundred and ninety thousand dollars in campaign contributions for the nineteen seventy two presidential campaign Rebozo's discussions with Richard Danner about a cash contribution from Howard Hughes began shortly after the 1968 election. In addition, a memorandum from early 1969 states that Haldeman informed Ehrlichman 
that President Nixon asked Rebozo to contact J.P. Getty for purposes of soliciting major contributions to be controlled by the White House. Edward L. Morgan has said that he was approached by John Ehrlichman in the spring of 1969 with the question of the legality of such a contribution from J.P. Getty. Mr. Rebozo testified that he contacted Mr. Getty and arranged an appointment for Herbert Kalmbach to solicit contributions at Mr. Kalmbach's request. On March 21, 1974, Herbert Kalmbach testified that Rebozo had asked him to solicit funds from Mr. Getty for the 1970 senatorial campaign program. Public documents from the Committee to Re-elect the President reflect a contribution to the 1972 campaign of $125,000 by Mr. Getty. Mr. Rebozo testified that he also arranged an appointment for Kalmbach with Mr. Raymond Guest to solicit contributions. Public records reveal a $200,000 contribution by Guest to the 1972 campaign to re-elect the president. On April 5, 1972, Mr. Rebozo opened an account at the Key Biscayne Bank and Trust Company entitled the Committee for the Re-Election of the President Account for the purpose of retaining 1972 campaign contributions. Rebozo stated that he opened the account to beat the April 6th deadline with respect to a $10,000 contribution which had been made. On April 6, 1972, Rebozo deposited $10,000 in the account, which was later wired the same day to the Finance Committee to re-elect the President's account at the First National Bank of Washington, D.C. The source of this contribution was Atlantic Investors of Miami Limited, partnership of J. Kislak and Alec Cortellis. Rebozo's campaign account in the Key Biscayne Bank and Trust Company also served as a repository after April 7, 1972, for $29,740 in other campaign contributions. These contributions were finally transferred to the Finance Committee's main account in Washington, D.C., on April 2, 1973. Rebozo was the recipient of each of these contributions that were forwarded to Washington, and he acknowledged the receipt of each contribution with a personal note. Rebozo, however, did not forward to the campaign committee any portion of the $100,000 cash contribution from Howard Hughes. On December 20, 1973, Rebozo testified that he did not receive any other pre-April 7th campaign contributions besides the Hughes and Kislak contributions and others that are reported. However, only when six months later he was asked specifically about a contribution from A.D. Davis did Rebozo acknowledge receipt of a $50,000 cash contribution from the Davis brothers on April 4th or 5th, 1972. This contribution from A.D. Davis and J.E. Davis was not reported in any records of the Finance Committee to re-elect the President, nor was it deposited in the account Rebozo established for 1972 contributions. Mr. A.D. Davis subsequently testified that he delivered $50,000 in $100 bills to Rebozo 
on April 5, 1972, which was intended only for President Nixon's 1972 re-election campaign. Davis also testified he and Rebozo discussed the importance of the April 7 date, and that Rebozo indicated to him that he would speak to the President about this contribution. Rebozo testified that he received the contribution from Davis, called the Finance Committee office in Washington, D.C., and that the Finance Committee dispatched Fred LaRue to Miami to pick up the contribution. In fact, LaRue testified that he did not discuss nor receive any campaign contributions from Rebozo until October 1972, a full six months after the Davis contribution was received. LaRue testified that he was contacted by Mr. John Kerr of the Nunn for Senate campaign in Kentucky in September 1972 concerning the possibility of sending additional funds from the committee to re-elect the president to the Nunn campaign. Mr. Kerr, however, denies any such request was made by him. LaRue testified he subsequently discussed the subject with former Attorney General John Mitchell, who had initially committed support to the Nunn campaign. LaRue testified that Mitchell suggested that he contact Rebozo for possible funds. When LaRue called him, Rebozo told LaRue that the funds were immediately available, and LaRue arranged to pick them up on his way back to Washington from his home in Jackson, Mississippi. LaRue's travel vouchers from CRP indicate that his trip from Jackson to Miami to pick up the cash did not occur until October 12, 1972. Finally, a letter dated October 13, 1972, from Maurice Stans to Mr. A.D. Davis, states, Through B.B. Rebozo, I learned of the encouragement that you have indicated for this year's election. The letter makes no reference to any contribution from Mr. Davis. LaRue testified that he picked up an envelope containing cash on that date from Rebozo, and that he probably told Rebozo that the money would go to a senatorial campaign, without specifying which one. LaRue said in an interview on October 9, 1974, that he received about $25,000 to $30,000 from Rebozo in October. However, in subsequent sworn testimony, LaRue could not rule out the possibility that he received as much or more than $50,000 from Rebozo. However, the date on which LaRue picked the money up from Rebozo was more than six months after Rebozo received the cash contribution from A.D. Davis, and Rebozo did not tell LaRue that the money he gave him was a contribution from A.D. Davis to the president's campaign. Further, there are no records of the contribution in Rebozo's campaign account. LaRue testified that he returned to Washington, D.C. with the cash, and commingled it with the cash already in his file cabinet, which was being used to pay the Watergate defendants. LaRue testified that subsequently a courier for the Nunn campaign picked up a sum of cash of about the same amount that he had picked up from Rebozo, during this campaign period in 1972. The Nunn campaign, however, denies receiving any such cash. Several issues remain unresolved concerning the Davis contribution and related events. 
furthermore mr rebozo refused to appear on june twenty sixth nineteen seventy four pursuant to a subpoena and letter dated june twenty first nineteen seventy four from chairman irvin to clarify the record concerning these and other issues major outstanding issues therefore remain one why mr rebozo failed to deposit the davis contribution in the bank account opened expressly for the purpose of receiving pre-april seventh contributions two when if ever did rebozo notify the finance committee concerning his receipt of the davis contribution three where did rebozo store the cash in the period of time between the receipt of the money from davis and his payment of the funds to larue four were the funds that were turned over to larue in the same amount and the original bills given to rebozo by a d davis five were any funds furnished by rebozo to larue paid to watergate defendants and did rebozo have any knowledge of that end of section fifteen recording by maria casper